0: Wretched Radio begins in 3, 2, 1.
1: So it's not a sin in your church to have an abortion?
0: That's the kind of conversation we would have, finding out your story,
2: where you're from. God's the judge. People have to live to their own conviction. The science is clear. The Bible is clear. And if we're honest, our intuitions are clear. We know what we're killing. We're killing a human being.
0: It's time for Wretched Radio with Tom Friel. Justification.
1: Is this it is an instantaneous legal act of God in which he number one decides to think of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us. And number two, declares us to be righteous.
3: This is Wretched Radio. And if you're thinking, hey, I've heard that clip before. Is this a rerun? No, it's not. I think it's a necessity. Why? Because I just returned from Pigeon Forge. That's right. I returned from Pigeon Forge. And I think we could all use a little dose of the doctrine of justification. You say, how did you arrive at that conclusion? And I say, central interpretive motif. It was the subject of which I spoke three times at the Teach Them Diligently conference at the Wisconsin Dells. I'm sorry, Pigeon Forge. I confused the two. One has mountains, the other doesn't. Otherwise, a lot of race cars, water park, cotton candy, face painting, and pretty much every chain in America located in Pigeon Forge. But the views woo, and the convention was so good and it was so sweet. I got to tell you, this is my observation. Rural America is friendlier than urban America currently is. I don't think it used to be this mm, obvious. It used to be you'd get into an elevator in a high-rise. Hey, how you doing? Pretty good. How you doing? What do you think about that weather? Didn't think it was going to rain today. Yeah, but we need the rain. It was pretty dry winter that we ha- got to go now. We don't do that as much anymore, but you do in Pigeon Forge. People were just plain nice and I liked it and I enjoyed talking about one central interpretive motif. You say, what is that big fancy Millard Erickson term? Think of how you view God like a wheel. Think of how you consider theology as a wheel. How you understand the Bible, it's a wheel. What's the hubcap? What's in the center? That's your central interpretive motif, out of which, Everything you do and believe flows and returns. There are many different central interpretive motifs. You've got one, even if you haven't thought through it. But I tried to argue and make the case that a very fine central interpretive motif for homeschool families, for churches, for individuals is, brace yourself for this, the love of God. That's right. The love of God. That's wrong. I didn't become liberal going to Pigeon 4. That doesn't happen when you go to Pigeon. Jimmy, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> there was a surprise. There were a number of, of stores up there. Uh-huh. We had to go visit one just to experience it. Uh, the Trump store. Oh, really? they are Trump stores. Yeah, we didn't spend much time. You know, I, if you're not from the South, they don't do this in the North. But you walk into a restaurant and people yell at you. Hey, welcome to (laughs) Moe's. We stopped at Bucky's on Highway 75. It's like the Walmart of gas stations, huge. And they yell at you. Hey, welcome to, come on in. How you doing? It's kind of a a Southern thing. So we walked into the Trump store in Pigeon Forge and the clerk yelled, you're stupid. (laughs) And ugly and fat. Oh, we didn't spend much time there, but we did spend a lot of time at the Teach Them Diligently conference talking about our central interpretive motif being the love of God. Why? Because of Exodus 34. God, this is this is a dramatic revelation because the drama surrounding how God speaks about himself, it's palpable. It's a bigly. Why? Because in the garden, God promised to send a seed. And he reiterated that promise with a bit more clarity to Abraham with his threefold covenantal one-way covenant. He said, you're going to have a land, a nation, and a singular seed. Land Israel, nation Jews, seed Jesus Christ. And now God has delivered his chosen people out of Egypt, out of bondage, taking them through the desert. He's ready to cut that covenant, the Mosaic covenant with Moses. And while Moses is up on the hill, down below, the people, God's people, are acting like pagans. That's right, pagans. And by the way, paganism, it's on the rise. I think I mentioned this last week. Yes, I I know I'm off subject. But hey... (laughs) Who of us doesn't have a short attention span? I was given a newspaper today. Dan gave me a newspaper. I started swiping it. How do I just make the pictures? I want pictures. Where's the videos? I need some ads on this thing. The return of paganism. About 8,000 pagans identified themselves in 1990. Oof. Then researchers asked in 2008. 340,000 Americans said, yes. Yes. I'm a pagan. 2018, get ready. 1.5 million Americans professing an array of pagan persuasions from Wicca to the Viking lore, making paganism one of the nation's fastest growing persuasions. Watch this return to Pigeon Forge. Met a young man in Pigeon Forge. His dad is a preacher. Super encouraging guy. His name should be Barnabas. At any rate, his son, who witnesses to his friends and people that he meets, said that he's running into Norse pagans a lot and, and, and that it's, 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 it's more and more prevalent. Then I read this and it's like, dude is right. There's a lot of pagans. Please remember, you can study paganism if you'd like to. It's pretty tough to study because probably the chief tenet of paganism is, eh, whatever, That's, ah, pick, just go ahead and pick and choose. Just maybe don't hurt me. Otherwise, you're a cool pagan. You don't have to know paganism. You have to know the gospel. You have to know law. You have to know gospel. That's how you witness to a pagan. That's how you witness to a druid. That is how you witness to a Roman Catholic. That's how you witness to anybody who is not a born-again Christian. So at that very same teach them diligently convention, you didn't think we'd get back on the road, did you? Tried to make the case that God in Exodus 34 presents his face to the Jewish people, and to the world. When you want to kind of get somebody to size them up, yeah, you can check out body language. Look at their face. What's their countenance? God describes his countenance after the children of Israel have sinned wickedly by making a golden calf. And so God is about to give Moses a second copy of the tablets. And Moses, interceding for the people who are acting like pagans, asks God, can I see you? I, 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 I want to see you. So God, you know the story. Does, Moses doesn't get to see his face. But God describes his face in Exodus 34:6, The Lord, the Lord. What does he say? Now this in my estimation is God's longest descriptor of himself. He offers six love softer attributes. His forgiving nature, his merciful nature, his pitiful nature. You say, wait, what? God's pitiful? No, he's filled with pity. He he sees us and he just ah. Uh, he's People are so obstinate and lost, and he forgives thousands upon thousands of what? Threefold, to make the point, all sins, all law-breaking, all evil acts. He forgives, he forgives, he forgives because he's merciful and he's gracious, and he is chesed, filled with loving kindness. Oh, and just so you don't think I'm nothing but beneficent, I don't leave the guilty unpunished. But look at the balance that that, that God wants to be known as the God of love. And so it was when I was done with my presentations at the Teach Them Diligently conference, spent some time talking to people. And they told me they struggle with what I had to say. Uh, They would say, "I, I don't know that you were wrong. I don't think you were. But this is just hard for me to get that God loves me? And that's why I think we could uh, all use a revisit to Milton Vincent's Doctrine of Justification sermon.
1: I think over the years prior to 10 years ago, I would have agreed with this definition. If you asked me, I probably would have even defined it in a way that was close to this. But I think I treated it as some sort of legal fiction And I kind of would imagine God, you know, in a moment of failure in my life and I come into his presence, I sort of would imagine God saying, yeah, Milton, technically you're justified, Uh, legally you're justified, but I'm angry with you anyway for what you did today. And I didn't understand that my justification actually would rule out that possibility Let me add to this definition, justification is not just a legal act of God in which He decides to think of our sins as forgiven and to think of Christ's righteousness as belonging to us, but we need to realize God binds Himself to this decision forever, and God says in addition to this, having made this decision about you today, I'm telling you now, I will never think another thought about you that is not fully governed by this decision. I will never allow myself to feel any feeling with regard to you or towards you that is not fully shaped and governed by this decision that I am rendering today. As your sovereign God, I will never allow anything in your life. I will never do anything you or allow anyone or anything else to do anything to you that is not fully governed by this decision that I
3: am rendering today. In other words, justification, it is legal and it is relational. It is legal, it's binding, and yet it serves a relational purpose. And it is a purpose that you would do well to embrace, especially if you struggle with Receiving the love of God. Next on Wretched Radio. You're familiar with this sound. You're sitting in church. Your pastor is preaching. You have your John MacArthur Study Bible open. The pastor is reading the scripture. And all of a sudden you hear everybody in church turning the page. Because they all have the same MacArthur Study Bible. Why? Because it is so helpful to be able to read study notes underneath the verses to really grasp what god's word is trying to teach how would you like to share the joy of putting a john macarthur study bible into the hands of a believer in the philippines they typically make about 12 to 15 dollars per not hour per day it's a luxury item and it would be such a blessing 25 dollars a bible Four Bibles, $100, or perhaps you could send a Bible to a brother or sister in the Philippines every single month. Would you please consider doing that to bring joy to our brothers and sisters? Wretched.org slash Bible.
2: You know, what used to be a movie is now our sad reality. We're living in a world that's gone absolutely bonkers, so much so that six mads just aren't enough to describe it. Social media may be bombarding us left and right, our Christian worldview may be under assault, but we have the dynamic duo of Todd Friel and Dr. Nathan Buznitz, and they're coming to the rescue with Wretched Worldview 2, tackling 22 of those pesky, thorny, contemporary issues through a biblical lens, helping to defend the biblical view on things like sexuality and gender, critical race theory, modesty and apparel, persecution, secular entertainment, environmentalism, 22 issues to be exact. So what are you waiting for? Head on over to wretched.org, grab your copy of Wretched Worldview 2. And hey, while you're there, snag that study guide too because it's the perfect companion for navigating this mad, 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 mad world with wisdom and grace.
3: Sorry to ask you to do some arithmetic, but this is some math that will encourage you and make you very, very happy. This is one testimony of a mother who chose life because she saw her own baby, courtesy of an ultrasound from At Preborn Centers, would you please help us grow that number by providing as many ultrasounds as possible at preborn.org slash wretched, preborn.org slash wretched. Know your church
0: fathers. Clement of Rome lived from AD 30 to 100, was a student of the Apostle Peter, and served as the Bishop of Rome. He wrote a letter to the troubled church in Corinth, warning against envy and immorality, emphasizing humility and repentance. His letter continued to be read during worship services for 80 years. This is Wretched Radio with Todd Friel.
3: May I ask, how would you... Have responded. This is Wretched Radio. Delivered three presentations at the Teach Them Diligently conference and Pigeon Forge on the central interpretive motif of the love of God. That's right. That when we think about God, we should think about his love. Oh yeah, he's got other attributes to be certain. But according to Exodus 34, God in his lengthiest descriptor of himself Offers three attributes of his chesed, his loving kindness, his mercy, his pity towards sinners, his forgiving nature, his long suffering. Those are the attributes that he stresses and then offers. And by the way, I don't leave the guilty unpunished. So we do hear about his justice and his wrath. But when we take a look at lists, there's always, they should get our attention. If God offers six descriptors of his character that are all on the softer side of his attributes, we would do well to pay attention and to not neglect the love of God. Okay, you want to make holiness your central interpretive motif? I wouldn't argue with you, but let's not neglect the love of God. We have a tendency to do that, don't we? We want theology. And that is good, but not at the neglect and the expense of knowing that God actually loves us. And he has gone about the business of justifying us so that we might have peace with God and a relationship with him. Do you struggle with that? Would you have heard my presentations and said, oh, I just I'll never get over this, that the God of the universe Knows me and blah, 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 I can't even say it. It's just, it's just amazing. Or would you like others have said, ah, I can't let myself do this. It's too hard. I I I wasn't raised this way. I wasn't taught this way. And I do understand that I'm a wretch. I do know that I'm totally depraved. And I just cannot begin to fathom that God would love me. Then maybe, just maybe, yep, this. We've played it before, and I'll play it again. A presentation from Milton Vincent on the Doctrine of Justification, Romans 5, 1 and 2, reminding us of the peace that we have with God through the Doctrine of Justification so that we might know him and enjoy a relationship with him, and maybe, just maybe, You need to hear this because you might just resonate with the folks that I spoke to at Teach Them Diligently or the man that Milton Vincent met. The
1: word peace, as many of you know, speaks of more than just the absence of hostility. It speaks of the luxurious presence of all that is needed to have a rich and a vital and intimate relationship with the sovereign God of the universe. We now observe that though our justification, yes, is legal, it was rendered with a profoundly relational intention by God. God has justified you if you believed in Jesus in order to bring you into close, rich, vital relationship with himself. God justified you. He would say, listen, I I did the whole justification thing to get the sin of the way to get you clothed with the righteousness of my son so that I can now give myself to you and we can have a friendship and have a relationship. I love what the commentator uh, Cranfield says, God does not confer the status of righteousness upon us without at the same time, giving himself to us in friendship and establishing peace between himself and us. I want you don't brush this off. I, I want to ask you tonight, Do you receive what I'm saying? Do you believe that God actually wants a rich, vital, luxurious friendship characterized by intimacy and closeness with you? Do Do you believe that? Do you believe you're justified and the reason he justified you was not as an end in itself, but as a means to a greater end of now having a relationship with you? Answer that question in your heart. I'll never forget a number of years ago. I was talking to a man in our church who had known the Lord for nine years. And I I knew how long he had known the Lord because I had led him to the Lord nine years earlier. But he seemed pretty low and discouraged. And I was meeting with him on a Friday morning, and right before he left, I just I stopped him and I asked him, I said, I said, brother, are you are you enjoying? intimacy with God? Are you enjoying intimacy with God? And this man turned around and looked at me and he said, listen to his words. He said, Oh, Milton, you have no idea the things I did before I was saved. Do you realize what he was saying by that? This this is a man who would say, I'm saved. I'm a Christian. My sins are forgiven. I'm justified. But God wouldn't want a close relationship with me. And he's like, and I'm okay with that. I don't even deserve that. Uh, I'm okay to just be forgiven and to have a home in heaven. But closeness with God, that's for people who haven't done the things I did before I was saved. And it was my joy to speak these truths into this brother, perhaps,
3: perhaps. Milton's truths need to be spoken into your life. Do you at least make an attempt to grasp that God has saved you in order to be in a relationship with you?
1: You get clothed with the righteousness of Jesus and and you're like, whoa, this is amazing. And, And then Jesus comes to you and says, oh, you think that's amazing? there's so much more. And he says, come, come with me. I want to take you to my father. Now that's what this is all about. That's the whole reason I got you dressed up like this. So you you could actually be in my father's presence. And he grabs you and he takes you by the arm. And, and imagine whatever scene you want, a, a, a beautiful palace scene. And he's taking you to the palace of the sovereign king of the universe. And as you get closer and closer to that palace, your heart maybe starts to shrink back in fear. Like, do I, do I really want to see and be seen by this God under whose wrath I used to be? And Jesus takes you down whatever corridors. And then here you come to the door behind which is this God of the universe. And you shrink back at the door and you're like, I don't know. I don't know, Jesus. And Jesus says, trust me. My father thinks of you as forgiven. And he thinks of you as righteous with my righteousness. Just trust me, come with me inside this room. And we come inside the room and there's God. God, And he greets us in warm friendship and relationship. And we're like, I can't believe I'm here and I'm not being struck dead. And then after we're in his presence for a couple minutes, we're like, should I stay or should I leave? How long do I get to stay here? And if I, if I leave after a couple minutes, I'm going to spend the rest of my life celebrating the fact that I got to spend a couple minutes with the sovereign king of the universe. And we look at Jesus, and it's like I'm feeling kind of awkward. I mean, should I, should I leave now? And Jesus says, no, actually, I brought you in here because you're welcome to stay here for the rest of your life. John Stott says, justified believers... Enjoy a blessing far greater than an occasional audience with the king. We are privileged to live in the temple and in the palace with that king. We get to stay. Stay under God's grace
3: at all times. Perhaps this rather recent coronation helps us to understand what Jesus Christ accomplished for us. Imagine you're at Buckingham Palace. This isn't a perfect illustration, but none are. You're at Buckingham Palace. You're passing out Living Waters gospel tracks with a picture of King Charles on the front. And suddenly there's a (laughs) in the the crowd because something is happening in the distance. And word is making its way to you uh, when suddenly you see the royal carriage. Could it be? Could it be King Charles? And as the carriage draws closer, you realize the king is in the carriage. Now, in this scenario, the king just drives right by you. He doesn't even turn to give you that royal wave. But wow, you got to see the king. Tell me you wouldn't tell your friends and family about that story regularly. But that's not what the doctrine of justification accomplishes. You see, Jesus Christ, the King, stops, invites you, 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 into the carriage. He doesn't give you that goofy handway. Come into the carriage with me. I've made it possible for you to come with me. And he brings you into the palace, into the presence of God himself that is what jesus has accomplished for you yes it was done you have been justified but that is not the end of your christian walk it is so that you can spend time with god enjoying him and knowing that you are loved by god question can you receive that truth this Is Wretched Radio.
2: And it's now time for a wretched news break on Wretched Radio. I'm Jimmy Hicks. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has decided to take on the Chinese Communist Party. Glad somebody is. He signed three new bills into law in the state. These bills target foreign influence in education and research institutions, effectively putting the kibosh on Confucius Institutes in Florida, colleges, and universities. The legislation aims to protect intellectual property and confidential information from being shared with or stolen by foreign adversaries. Public officials and employees are now also required to disclose any foreign financial relationships. Over the next two months, the Supreme Court is expected to rule on six high-profile cases covering a range of issues, including voting rights, gun control, free speech, and religious freedom. And the decisions have the potential to significantly impact American society, possibly even changing the legal landscape for years to come. And in a recent controversy, one church decided to test the waters by displaying God is trans on its church sign. Sparked quite a bit of debate it should have with critics arguing that the church shouldn't be promoting such messages because it expressly violates biblical teaching and unfortunately not everyone that claims to quote teach the bible actually reads the bible Meanwhile, in Uganda, a man who converted from Islam to Christianity faced a brutal reality check when he was severely beaten by a group of people, leaving him unconscious. And that attack highlights the constant ongoing persecution of Christians in Uganda. As we tell you daily here at Wretched, please make sure to continue praying for all of our persecuted brothers and sisters abroad. Well, murder farms or abortion clinics in three states have filed lawsuits demanding the right to continue providing abortion pills. So murder farms want to continue murdering, obviously. They argue that the pills are a safe and effective method of early abortion. Yeah, you can't say safe and abortion in the same sentence. They don't go together. Opponents are saying, wait a minute, hold on a second. The pills are not dangerous because they kill innocent unborn babies and they should be banned. Yeah, hopefully they will. In the state of Texas, the House passed a bill that would overturn a ridiculous rule that allows hospitals to withdraw life-sustaining treatment from patients after a 10-day notification. I didn't even know this was a law. I guess I missed it. I've been hiding under a rock, apparently. Supporters of the bill argue that the current rule violates patient rights and can lead to premature euthanasia. That's exactly what it leads to. Critics, however, claim that the change would place an undue burden on hospitals and medical professionals. Uh, You know what? It is burdensome for hospitals and medical professionals to try to save the life of people in the hospital. Isn't that what they're there for? And that has been your Wretched News Break for today. More Wretched Radio is straight ahead. I'm
0: Jimmy Hicks. Books of the Bible. God called the prophet Jonah to preach repentance in Nineveh. Jonah fled, but he could not outrun God. He was cast into the sea and swallowed by a great fish. Jonah repented, and God spared him. Jonah then preached in Nineveh, and they repented. God is compassionate and merciful, and He is calling men from all nations to repentance. This is
3: Wretched Radio with Todd Friel. If you are a youth pastor or Christian book publisher, this one's for you. This is Wretched Radio. Don't know if you realize this, but in Christian publishing, authors are encouraged. Dumb it down. Make it simple. Don't use big words. If you find that you've got a word that is more than two syllables, look for an... Use your thesaurus. the which is actually a three-syllable word. Why? Because they are under the opinion that the masses are really dumb and they can't get it. Similarly, youth pastors are told, hey, keep it simple for the kids. They're going to tune out on you. Might I suggest to you, if you're a youth pastor or Christian publisher who believes that, the problem is not in using big words. It's that you don't know how to talk about them in an interesting way. Teen Vogue. I hold in my never before nicotine stained fingers. Here's the article. Here's the headline. Supreme Court LGBT this is Teen Vogue. All right. I, I don't know what Teen Vogue used to be about, but now they're about this type of stuff. Supreme Court LGBTQ plus rights case. What's at stake in 303 Creative versus Ellenus? It it's a Supreme Court case. It's a big one, by the way, for Christians. Do you do you hear that headline? That's not a stupid person headline. This is written to teens. Supreme Court LGBTQ rights case. What's at stake? 303 Creative v. Ellenis. I went through the first paragraph of this article. I circled the following words. See if you notice a theme. Because apparently the people at Teen Vogue don't think the teenagers are idiots. They use the word Americans. That's four syllables right there. E-li-mi-na-ted, 5 syllables. Sa-do-mi, three syllables. Legalized, equality, established, non-discrimination. Non-discrimination. Six syllables, Christian publisher. Protections, substantial, and community. This is, this is a big case, by the way, if you haven't been tracking this one, you can look for, well, maybe we can look forward to the decision rendered by the Supreme Court. It's a woman from a Colorado-based graphic designer business, owner of a web design firm called 303 Creative. She won't create wedding websites for LGBTQ people. Watch for this one. Look, even in this paragraph, it uses the word accommodations. Discrimination orientation oh how will the kids ever read teen vogue they can and they can grasp big words if we just use them in a way that shows them hey these words that we use in theology they're really really important and they're really really worthy of your consideration the problem isn't in the hearer the problem frankly is with the teacher now i'll admit justification is a
1: big word it's a five-syllable word. And the size of the word, maybe even the sound of the word, people find intimidating. And I, th- there's actually been times that I've been preaching or been trying to minister to someone, and I mention the word justification, and they don't use these words, but the vibe I get is like, whoa, uh, that, that's a huge word there, Pastor Milton. I'm, you know that's kind of overwhelming, and you lost me there, and they just shut down on you. You ever had that happen? It's crazy. (laughs) And here's here's the crazy thing. If you say to that very person, hey, tell me about the medications you're taking. It's amazing. All the esoteric names and milligrams and stuff, it just rolls right off their tongue. They speak fluent medicineese. I'm serious. And (laughs) You know, tell me about your health. Well, you know, I've got osteoarthritis. That's a six syllable word. That doesn't seem to bother you. Um, I've got osteoarthritis, and you know, the last couple of years I've been taking uh, glucosamine chondroitin tablets. <laughs> And that's helped me out a little bit. But you know what? I went to the doctor the other day, and he told me I need to take 600 milligrams of acetaminophen each day. And I've been doing that, Pastor, and it's been a huge help. (laughs) I guarantee, and it just rolls right off their tongue. And I guarantee you when a person like that goes into the doctor's office and the doctor says, I think you have osteoarthritis. You know that person didn't say, whoa, you lost me there, doctor. I'm tuning you out. No, they're like, what is that? Am I going to die from it? And they're pumping the doctor. They're pumping the doctor for as much information as they can and then what, what needs to be taken for it, and they're not even content with the information the doctor gives them. They go home and they Google osteoarthritis, and, and they literally, I watch people do this, they become transformed into experts on their physical condition and on all the medications and dietary changes that need to happen in order to address that physical condition. And you know what? I have no problem with that at all. I think that's great. I think it's phenomenal. And you may say, well, Pastor Mountain, of course I would do that because my physical health is at stake. And that's exactly my point. Your spiritual health is at stake when it comes to the doctrine of justification. And it just so happens that the prescription for what ails you is called justification. Google that word. (laughs) Study that Um, And talk to other people about it. Spend time in the sections of scripture that lay this doctrine open. And you will find that it is a very big deal and makes a profound difference. In your life.
3: In other words, the application helps us to appreciate the doctrine of justification. It's interesting to me that one of the most popular fellows, period, these days in social media delivering speeches is Jordan Peterson. And he slings the psycho jargon constantly, uses Big words, fancy language, never apologizes for it. And kids follow him by droves. And yet in the church, we say, keep it simple. Keep it stupid because the people can't get it. Yeah, they can get it. The problem is you just don't explain it in a way that makes it interesting. Notice how Paul
1: uses the word grace. Verse two, through whom also we've obtained our introduction by faith into this grace which we stand, what does the word grace mean? Undeserved favor, right? Whenever you see grace, think favor and think undeserved. In fact, think ill-deserved. In other words, it's not only have we not earned it, but it's the opposite of what
3: we have earned. That's grace. And that is interesting. And that has real life applications, that you are living under the beneficent smile of God because of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. Doesn't this generation need to hear that? This depressed, lonely, sad, suicidal generation? Don't they need to hear this? Don't they need something to celebrate? And isn't that, by the way, exactly what we're supposed to be doing with the doctrine of justification? Celebrating it. People will. If you present it in an interesting way, don't don't have the attitude of, OK, I'm justified.
1: Glad that's taken care of. OK, Lord, give me the rules to live by. I'm going to do this sanctification thing. Don't do that. God actually wants you. He justifies you. It's a once and for all occurrence. But he wants you to take that reality and put it in front of your face and walk with that reality in front of your face day by day. That's what Paul did. Look at this. Romans chapter five. Look at the end of verse two, or let's start in verse one. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exalt. That's present tense. We are continuously exalting. Paul would say, I've known the Lord for decades now, and I'm still exalting over my justification. We exalt continuously in the hope of the glory of God. Verse three, we exalt even in our tribulations because we're justified. Verse 11, we exalt in God. Here's Paul, decades into his walk with the Lord, decades after he was justified and received this verdict. And Paul's saying, We exalt, we exalt, we exalt. When you read Romans five, you're not reading a man passively writing doctrine. You observe in this chapter, A man in worship who is worshiping and exulting in the reality of his justification. We know from chapter 16 that Tertius was the man who was writing down what Paul was saying. So he's dictating this letter. And I just imagine Paul just pacing the room, man. And he's just, he's getting excited. He spent how many verses talking about justification? And he comes in to chapter 5 and he's like, we exalt, we exalt, we exalt. Write down this reference, Psalm 32, verse 11. Uh, David says, be glad in the Lord and exalt you righteous ones. And in the Greek translation of Psalm thirty-two eleven, it's the same Greek word that's used here. That's a call to worship in Psalm thirty-two eleven, and Paul says, "I'm responding to that call to worship. I'm a righteous one, and I'm exulting. I'm exulting. I'm
3: exulting." He's rejoicing in this. Couldn't the kids use a little exulting? Uh, maybe it's time we use big words like justification and make that word as interesting as it actually is. This is Wretched Radio. How's inflation been treating you? If costs for health insurance are skyrocketing in your home, would you please visit MediShare.com slash Wretched, affordable, biblical health sharing, Christians paying for other Christians' medical bills, which means you don't have to worry where the money is going for bad stuff. Second of all, you can save on average $500 per month. And finally, MediShare, it's the gold standard for healthcare sharing for more than 25 years. It works, and the members, including myself and Mrs. Friel, love it, which is why their customer satisfaction rate is double traditional health insurance. If inflation has got you down, call up the people at MediShare, 844 hey, BIBLE, so or MediShare.com slash
2: choose to invest in our resources at wretched.org. Kind of like Derek, who recently wrote in and said, quote, just wanted to send some thankfulness to you and the entire Wretched team. Your podcasts have been impactful. I'm thankful for them and thankful for your many resources. And your words of gratitude are music to our ears. And speaking of gratitude, we would also be incredibly grateful if you would prayerfully consider joining our dedicated team of monthly gospel partners. When you become an ongoing monthly gospel partner, you help us continue creating theologically sound content that reaches millions all over the world with the gospel of our lord jesus christ now's your chance to make an even bigger impact visit wretched.org slash donate text the word wretched to the number 44321 and together we can continue sharing this incredible message of grace and salvation with the world wretched amazing grace amazing gospel
0: A vital part of biblical hermeneutics is an understanding of genre. One genre we find in scripture is poetry. Poetry relies on imaginative and figurative language to expand on a theme, examine emotions, and reflect on who God is and what He has done. God's timeless truth is written down by biographers and artists alike. This is Wretched Radio with Todd Friel.
3: Want to worship better and evangelize more? Enthusiastically, of course you do. This is Wretched Radio, lessons from Moses. That's right. One more reason to not unhitch our Old Testament. In Exodus 34, we see the key to greater worship and evangelistic fervor. In one little section of scripture, in Exodus chapter 34, if you recall, Moses is, is, he knows that God would be right in slaying the people that Moses was allowed the privilege to lead out of Egypt. Why? Because they were worshiping a golden image while God was giving Moses the Ten Commandments. And Moses asked God, can I see you? Would you would you show me you? God descends in a cloud. Moses doesn't get to see his face, but God describes his face. And if you recall, he described himself with words that shine the spotlight on his softer attributes you've got soft attributes you've got hard attributes hard attributes wrath justice anger well always by the way just as an aside be careful that you don't get off the rails of the doctrine of simplicity god isn't parts not made up of bits he's one he's simple In that regard. Nevertheless, we see categories of attributes. So you see harder, and then you see softer, like love and mercy and grace and gentleness and kindness and patience. And those are the words that God uses to describe Himself. And they are words that are so rich that He is the forgiver, He's the one who loves to forgive. But don't forget, I won't let the guilty go unpunished. Now, let's pick up our story. Shall we? So he cut two tablets of stone like the first ones. Moses rose early in the morning, went up to Mount Sinai, and as the Lord had commanded him, he took in his hand the two tablets of stone. These are the replacement tablets. Now the Lord descended in the cloud, stood with him there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness, abounding, where sin did abound, grace did much more abound, and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty. Now, here's the response. Verse 8, So Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped, what caused Moses to worship and to prostrate himself, to to get down on his face, to worship God, what was it? It was the knowledge that God is good. What is your central interpretive motif about God? If your worship is a little bleh, there's a really good chance What you are studying about God is probably more in the camp of the harder attributes than the softer attributes. Because if Moses is any indicator of what our response is when we hear preaching, he just heard God preach about himself and describe himself in emphatic terms as being chesed, filled with loving kindness, which is, by the way, a word used in the Old Testament, give or take about 250 times Agape love in the New Testament used like 150, 60 times. In other words, it's a big deal. God wants us to know about that. Now, that's not all he wants us to know. Don't be falling into the love ditch where it's just nothing but ooey-gooey, God loves us. Let's go have a big sin party. No, but shouldn't we at least visit that attribute regularly? Maybe that's why your worship isn't enthusiastic. Do you remember when you first got saved? You couldn't believe that God would save you. Suddenly, what you only knew as a football stadium sign uh, just took on such eternal significance for God so loved the world he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him won't perish but have everlasting life. He did that for me because he loves me. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound! And we sang and we were enthusiastic and we wanted to tell people about it, didn't we? Let's continue in our story. Verse 8 Moses made haste, bowed his head toward the earth, and worshiped. Then he said to God, If now I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray, go among us. And even though we are a stiff necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us as your inheritance. Suddenly, Moses wanted the people to experience the love of God. He wanted them to know what he was now basking in, literally, with the presence of God. Oh, don't don't abandon your people. Forgive their iniquity, too, and let them know this about you. He became evangelistic. He worshiped. And he became evangelistic. Do you remember when you first got saved? Weren't you evangelist? You had to tell people. In fact, you probably busted up some relationships because you were so tenacious in telling people about the love of God in Christ. You've got to know this. You just have to know this. Now, it's very possible it was a cage stage sort of affair. But the knowledge of the love and the mercy and the forgiveness of God in motivates worship and... It makes us want to tell others about this grace. Let me ask you a question about the sermons that you're listening to. Do they focus ever on the love of God? Ever? Do do, do, do you you spend time there? I've even heard sermons where John 3.16 was actually turned into, yeah, well, he, he loves those that he saves, but... Let me tell you what he does. Go to verse 17. And they just right by it because they don't want to spend time there. We should be like Moses. We want to spend time there. And if you're not listening to preaching that has that goal, you're probably not being warmed. You're probably not worshiping well. And your evangelism is probably struggling a bit because you can help tell, but not tell what you've seen and heard, because you haven't seen or heard it lately. If you're a pastor, might I encourage you, please ask yourself a question about every sermon that you've written. Hopefully you ask it before, but definitely afterwards. Am I helping my people experience the love of God more? Because if this sermon doesn't do it, I got to go back and rework it. If I'm just banging, 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 teaching, 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 parson, 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 I I don't think that it is a complete sermon. It's got to have an end. It's got to have a purpose. It's got to have a point. What's your sermon's point? What is your central sermon motif? What are you trying to do for your people? Gospel Assurance, a 31-day guide to assurance compiled by Mike Abendroth. Let me take you to day 29. This resource, by the way, it is available at wretched.org. Assurance of Salvation by Horatius Bonar. You know he's dead with a name like Horatius. That trend hasn't caught back on. Hor- Horatius, honey. Yeah, come inside. Time for a bologna sandwich, Horatius. Nobody's Nobody's following that trend right there. Christ for us. The obedient in the place of the disobedient is the first part of our message. His assumption of the legal claims, which otherwise would have been good against us, is the security of our deliverance. In other words, Christ for us, the doctrine of justification, Christ is for us. He propitiates, he atones on our behalf. That deliverance becomes an actual thing to us immediately upon our consenting to allow him to undertake our case. In other words, when you get saved, you are delivered. Christ is for you. Christ in us is the second part of the gospel. This second is of a, a mighty moment, and yet it is not to be confounded with the first. That which is done for us is not the same as that which is done in us. By the former Christ for us, we are constituted righteous. By the latter, we're made holy. The one is properly the gospel in the belief of which we are saved. The other, the carrying out of the gospel in the soul. Christ for us is our justification. Christ in us and we in Christ, that is our holiness. The former is the external substitution. The latter, the internal energy or operation taking its rise from the former, yet not to be confounded with it or substituted for it. That is your key to worship. That is your key to evangelism. That is your key to fighting sin. Remember that Christ is for you, but he's also in you, dwelling in you, because he loves you. And that is the very knowledge then that propels you. And it's my experience in talking to folks, they struggle with this. They feel like, yeah, justified, but I have to maintain it. No, you don't. You can't. And because you don't and you can't, and because Christ is for you, and because he is dwelling in you, that is the very knowledge that you need to battle sin, to not look at pornography, to be kinder to your kids, to be gentler with your spouse, to worship God more fervently, and to evangelize. Question, what's your central interpretive motif? It makes a difference. And until tomorrow, go serve your king.